Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with G. Edward White about his book, Law in American History, Volume 3, 1930 to 2000. Ted White, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks, Mark. Nice to be here. Well, it's nice to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. I'm a professor at the University of uh, Virginia School of Law. I... um, I started my academic career, my post-undergraduate career, uh, as a a Ph.D. candidate in American Studies at Yale. I received a Ph.D. in in 1967. Um, And as most people at that time, my ambition was to end up being a a historian in in a history department somewhere in the arts and sciences world of universities. Um... Uh, and uh, somehow along the way, as I got closer to a dissertation and, and enjoyed writing a dissertation, um, I decided that uh, I was living with some law students um, at Yale, and and uh, I just thought, well, I'm not sure completely that I want to go into arts and sciences teaching, and, and maybe I'd, I'd get a law degree and try to figure out what happened next. I was fortunate in that the uh, Vietnam War was heating up, but I was in a, a, a category, draft board category, that I wasn't going to be drafted. Uh, I, I was married, and I was over 26. So I ended up going to law school. Um, and then once I got to law school, I almost immediately thought I'd like to be a law professor. That took a while to um, work out. Uh, it's a, uh, the, in, in those days, it wasn't very important to have an additional degree, um, PhD degree it is now. Um, legal history, the field in which I decided I wanted to work in, wasn't very coveted. Uh, so I ended up uh, clerking and, and then went onto the law market at that time. And, and my wife um, and I came to Virginia because my wife was uh, admitted into the law school, um, and it was the sort of best deal we could get from the opportunities I, I had at the time. Um, so we've been in Charlottesville ever since. I've, I've not, neither of us has regretted that, uh, that decision. The sheer, uh, range of books that you've written over the course of your career is, is truly impressive. And, and, you know, they're not just confined to, uh, legal, uh, matters or legal history. You write about, uh, baseball, you write about American culture. What led you to write a trilogy about the history of American law? Well, it's one of those projects that that um, of which there are a few on my uh, uh, on the list of my publications that I didn't choose myself. Um, I was uh, I, I was encouraged um, by uh, Oxford University Press uh, in the uh, 1990s to to write a, a what was they conceived of as a competitive volume to one written by. Lawrence Friedman called the History of American Law. Friedman's work has been very successful. It's in, it's now in its third edition, and and uh, but it's 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 um it's a narrative history, and its uh, primary emphasis is the relationship of law to uh, society generally, and not a lot of attention to public law. And Oxford somehow had the idea that I could do a competitive one volume with a different emphasis. And I, I agreed to sign a contract, and, and then I, I put off doing it, um, did some other work, and uh, eventually made a book proposal to Oxford after 9-11 uh, about, um, about uh, a book for a book which I have not written uh, called uh, Exporting Freedom, about, about how the uh, uh, West was interested in exporting uh, its brand of... Uh, of uh, democracy and and uh, um, uh, liberties uh, to other regions, and that wasn't all that successful. 
Um, anyway, uh, Oxford responded. I sent that proposal to Oxford. They responded by saying, well, you, you know, we'll take this, but uh, you have to write the other one, the one American history book first. So I, I agreed to do that, and I set out to do it. And I realized, first first off, that I wasn't going to be able to do it in one volume. The the kind of work I wanted to produce wasn't just wasn't capable, or I wasn't capable of of uh, boiling it down and synthesizing it in, into a one volume. I wanted to cover the period from the colonial years through the uh, end of the 20th century, and I just I just felt I couldn't do that in one uh, do it in one volume and do the sort of work that that I would that I would be proud of. So, so I, I, I basically revised the understanding with Oxford and, and, and decided that I would do three volumes. Uh, started off in my first volume, uh, came out in 19, uh, in 2012. And, and that was, uh, uh, from the colonial years through the civil war. And then I did a second volume, which, which was published in 2016 called, um, the, from reconstruction through the 1920s. And this is the third and, and, and final volume. Uh, so it, it's been a long it's been a long uh, time for me working on this. Uh, I I knew some uh, history and, and legal history um, going into it, but I didn't know a lot about a lot of topics. And it, it's been a great learning experience for me. Um, it's been a difficult judgment. Uh, we'll you know we may talk more about that uh, this, but. It's been a, ju- a difficult judgment about what to include and what not to include. I mean, history is a once described as a seamless web. It has an almost infinite amount of data. The question is, what data are you going to choose to re- report about, and, and and why? You want to make it interesting to your contemporary readers. Uh, you have to bear that in mind. And and but you're obviously going to be selecting some topics and not others. Uh, there's a great deal of American legal history left out in in these volumes, um, so I had to make a lot of of decisions of, of that sort along the way. Uh, in the end, it, it was a challenging uh, it was a challenging project. It was one I learned a lot about. Um, it was it, it, it was difficult in terms of selectivity and also juggling the degree of the detail and um, uh, let's say um, sophistication. With audiences in mind, um, and and uh, I, you know, I'm not sure how successfully I I accomplished those goals, but uh, I spent some time with them. I, there's a question that I was reading about it that I I you know I, I just kept coming back to me, and I want to ask it to you since you know I'm I'm, I'm speaking with you about your book, which is a, your first two volumes. You're writing about you know this this long period of American history. This third volume, you're writing about a period with which you have a lot of firsthand knowledge. You've you've clerked, you you've you've witnessed it, you've written articles about it. Did that in any way change your uh, approach to the subject or did you sort of have to detach that knowledge and approach it approach it with a bit more of a of a fresh look when you were addressing say the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s? Yes, that was a that was a distinct challenge uh, for the third volume that wasn't present in the other two. I, I was uh, I was a participant observer um, for much of the uh, material I was writing about. That's not to say that I actively participated in all of the topics that I wrote about. I did I did participate in some, um, but. But more importantly, I, I was writing about material that I had, for much, much of which I had experienced firsthand. I, I feel very strongly in, in, in writing history that the, that the author needs to keep herself or himself out of it as much as possible, that there's a real, there's a real um, uh, difficulty in, in projecting one's own values and, and, and one's own normative agenda into what one is writing about. And I think on the whole, that's pretty much a fatal uh, as a historian. Really what you want to do as a historian is, is, is reproduce the past as faithfully as you can, especially in the sense of trying to, get, um, trying to recreate the ideas and attitudes of past actors in a way that doesn't make judgments, moral judgments or normative political judgments about them, and and that was very, that was difficult for me to do with respect to some topics because I was sort of 
right there. Um, I, also, what happens is, you know, you go through something uh, as contemporary, then you then you experience writing about it much later, and you find that your that your perspective on it has changed. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd, let's. I'd like to delve into the book, and as as you indicate, it's an incredibly rich book. You, you, you talked about you know you had to make certain choices, and yet you include so much in the scope of it. I'd like to start where you start the book in where you talk about the emergence of legal realism. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain what legal realism is and why it emerges at this point in the history of American law. The first thing I want to say about that is is that in the other two volumes, I had no chapters on jurisprudence. Uh, jurisprudence is, is, the, uh, is the subject. It's roughly equivalent to legal philosophy. It's It's... It's a, it's a writing about the nature and sources and methods of law itself. And it doesn't appear in the American Legal Academy as a, as a subject uh, in the curriculum until the 20th century. And, and the reason for that has to do with the emergence of legal realism. Le- legal realism it can be sort of reproduced as, as a... Um, a philosophy of law that that emphasizes the the fact that judges are essentially a, a species of lawmakers. They're not they're not merely people that find and discover and and uh, and apply the law. The law being something apart from their own attitudes and interpretations of it. Uh, that is the that is the prevailing attitude about law and judging for most of the rest of the. Uh, uh, subjects of my book, the the the, the 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 idea that law is apart from its interpreters, and that law is a, in some ways, a a, a collection of fundamental principles that doesn't radically change with time. Th- that is the prevailing view of law, and the prevailing view of judges is that they are essentially educated persons in in legal interpretation. Legal interpretation is a kind of science, if you will, or uh, uh, and the technique, and they 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 are learned in that technique, but but they're not really politicians. They're not really political actors. Um, they don't have agendas in in the way we think of judges today. Legal realism is the first jurisprudential movement in the United States that discards that older these older views of law and judging and replaces them with views that we would now call modern, that, that is to say the view that, that, that law is a more malleable source of authority than, than the previous view thought. It's not just timeless fundamental principles. It's, it's authoritative sources whose authority changes with time and, and meaning changes with time. And, and the, the principle... Uh, Actors that engage in that process are judges. So judges are judges are first and foremost uh, interpreters, w- which are who are approaching the law uh, from a contemporary perspective. And so one can think of legal decisions as having a, a an ideological and political component. The realists make all of these arguments, and and when they first make them, they're extremely controversial and resisted. Uh, but by the 1930s, they, they've be- largely become orthodoxy, uh, especially in, in legal education. So you have this emergence of, of jurisprudence that you talk about, but you're not just talking about the notion of abstract theories of law. You're also talking in your book about law and practice, and you uh, do this early on when you talk about uh, law in wartime. And here you... Uh, Go a bit beyond the the chronological scope of your book. You talk a bit about uh, what's happening in, say, the First World War, uh, which you then, but you do that in order to tie it into what you're talking about during the Second World War. How did American law change as a result of the wars that the United States was uh, fighting in the first half of the 20th century? Yeah, I actually in the in the chapter that that I call conundrums of of war and law, um, I actually go back. Uh, as far as the Civil War, because that's the first um, instance in which 
there is a, a code uh, in, in the United States that there, there's a code of of the laws of war. The first idea, the, the first instance is that you can actually write down obligations that 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 soldiers and and um, and and uh, persons who are uh, formulating military policy have in a wartime setting, and and the conundrums chapter traces this idea of the law of war as being a a, a somewhat self-contained unit which confers obligations on participants in in military actions the way in which that changes as first of all total the concept of total war emerges that that total war means that that you've moved from a point where war where military actions are being fought by by mercenaries paid soldiers and the civilian population is sort of placed to one side to where the civilian population is engaged civilian casualties are part are a necessary part of law and really the civil war is where this transformation occurs but once you make that transformation once war becomes about civilians as well as military personnel, then that puts a strain on the concept of the the older concept of the law of war, it, with respect to things like prisoners and treatment of civilians and a lot of issues. So, and, and the the matter gets further complicated in when we move beyond World War One to World War Two, where weaponry changes, uh, the capacity of of a warring uh, countries to rapidly seize territory and capture prisoners. Uh, the 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 idea of uh, the weapons of of uh, of devastating capacities. All, all of that, all of that changes. Uh, all of that changes the law of war. So that chapter is about about those changes. I, I was especially struck by your engagement with the issue of as you were talking about. As you start to incorporate civilians in war, there is this consideration now of civilians as the enemy. And here, of course, talking about the internment cases that you discuss and you and about how this is a subject that, uh, you, you know, there's maybe a few antecedents in the Civil War, but it really represents a lot of very thorny issues. And, and I was thinking about how this ties into what you talk about in with your discussion of jurisprudence. You have judges that are not simply seeking to apply the law, but they're aware that they're doing so in a time of war, and they can't just simply apply it without consideration of the fact that they may might make decisions which might hamper the war effort. Yes, there there are some um, there, there are some decisions made in World War Two that, in retrospect, uh, are. Are, are now regarded as somewhat notorious. The, the, one of them is, or two of them are decisions sustaining the internment policy with respect to Japanese Americans on the West Coast. Japanese Americans were essentially rounded up and put in, in, in uh, uh, detention centers, um, and, and sometimes their, their property was seized, and, and sometimes families were, were separated. Uh, the, the conditions in the in the detention centers were not anything like the equivalent of concentration camps in 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 under the Nazis, but but they were the the, the liberties uh, of the of the uh, internees were severely restricted, um, and the Supreme Court of these were challenged, uh, and one of the basis of the challenges was that Japanese Americans were singled out for detention, but. Uh, but German Americans and Italian Americans were not, even though the United States was at war with Germany and Italy as well as Japan. So the the, the challenges were based in part on an equal protection argument that the, this was a, a arbitrary classification, and and the Supreme Court upheld them basically. And and you know there's a sort of fascinating um, uh, opinion by Justice Black in the one of the cases Karamatsu, in which he says that. Uh, uh, classifications based on race will will uh, yield the most rigid scrutiny, but in the same breath, he says the the, the Japanese were not uh, incarcerated because they were Japanese; they were incarcerated because the United States was at war with Japan. Well, of course, that just begs the question: I mean, if that's so, then why weren't the other 
representatives of of uh, nations that we were at war with incarcerated as well so yeah one of the sobering messages uh, about tracing the law of war over time is that when uh, when uh, uh, the united states is at is at war it's going to affect everything and in that includes the decisions of courts uh, sustaining uh, policies that in, in peacetime would probably not be. Your book also covers a lot of broader developments in American law as well. And I was thinking here about your examination about agency governance. And I was wondering if you could perhaps explain what you mean by that phrase and how it affects the, uh, how, how it's reflected in the changes that are taking place in American law and, and how does American law shape that concept? The, the the phrase agency government governance refers to the fact that prior to the late 19th century, the idea of federal and state administrative agencies is not part of the system of government in the United States. Really, the 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 um, the administrative agency, uh, uh, a purportedly independent body of of uh, that has a particular expertise in a subject and serves as a regulatory agent, um, that that doesn't emerge until the Interstate Commerce Commission, uh, w- w- which is created in, in 1887, and doesn't proliferate. Agencies don't proliferate, especially at the federal level, uh, until the early 20th century. Um, so that's when we get the Food and Drug Administration and the, uh, eventually the Federal Communications Commission and the Federal Power Commission and, and other other federal agencies, and, and there's a particular attitude about government that accompanies the emergence of these agencies, which is that that government uh, government actors can be nonpartisan. Government actors are are informed by expertise. Uh, government actors can be independent of of the other branches, uh, and and that and that all of this is a good thing. That that disinterested government by experts um, reaching out to identify social problems and and addressing them is is part of the new wave of of modern american government so so the chapter is about that it's about that and it's about the reaction in the courts to agencies um, which is on the whole um, a hostile is not is too strong a word, but but not altogether receptive. The the it takes a long time for for the courts to accommodate themselves to agency government. Uh, and as as late as the as the New Deal period, um, and culminating in the in, in Administrative Procedure Act of 1946, there's still uh, an attitude which thinks that judges ought to have considerable oversight. Uh, over agencies. So that's that's part of the chapter as well. I, I was thinking about that uh, mindset that you talk about in terms of agency governance and how it, it sounds so similar to the idea of what the role the judges played prior to the emergence of concepts of jurisprudence, this notion that they are just impartial actors who are, uh, you know, dis- who are, who are sort of coldly calculating what the law says and, and, and the idea that, that that bias doesn't apply. It's interesting how that idea gets imported into the notion of administration at the very time that you're starting to see it being re, uh, reconsidered when it came to judges. Yes, um, but, uh, but the explanation for that is that the same people who are concluding that judges are a species of political actors continue to maintain a belief that a uh, an, uh, a person engaged in administration, provided they have a proper scientific training and expertise, can make, in effect, nonpartisan decisions. There's a great deal of faith in the, in the uh, 1930s and, and 1940s uh, about science uh, as a uh, as a, a, a way of, of gathering knowledge, informing knowledge, and the scientific method as being essentially objective. Uh, and, and agencies are, the, the growth of agencies is premised on their 
on their engaging in a, in a scientific methodology and being and being experts. So, so yes, the, there's a sort of, of faith in agency expertise that accompanies their emergence, and then there's a pushback uh, or recoiling from this in the 1950s uh, and on, where we get the phenomenon of what's called agency capture which is that, that once an agency is in place, it has a constituency of, of regulatees. You know, it's, it's regulating an industry. It's regulating a sector of the economy. And, and since it's there and it has ongoing relationships with the people that are regulating it, over time the, the regulatees begin to influence the agency. Uh, the agency begins to get captured. Uh, and, but that isn't part so there's a, there's, the result is a kind of skepticism uh, toward agency governance, which emerges in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, but, but that's not part of the original story. The original story is, in the original story, the, the growth of agency government is predicated on this faith about agency nonpartisanship and agency expertise. There's another dynamic that's developing during this time as well that you encompass in a very broad-ranging chapter. You refer to it as the statutorification of the common law. I was wondering if you could explain what you mean by this phrase and, and, and how is it a development and a, and a break from the previous uh, decades in American legal history? Yeah, the, 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 the 19th century... Um uh, particularly the period after the Civil War, is one in which certain what are called common law fields, common law just refers to uh, judicial decisions that are fashioned over time, um, and, and uh, it originates in, in England and, and then moves forward into America. So there's a long legacy of judicial decisions um, as precedents and and doctrines, uh, common law fields have doctrines that are, that are governing, and the doctrines change over time. All of that is sort of called the common law. That is the main source of private law in the United States um, in, in, the, in the 19th century. Um, what happens in the early 20th century is there's much more legislative activity because of the idea of affirmative government. States begin to pass legislation uh, affecting a variety of legal subjects. And some of that legislation involves common law fields. So I, I'm calling the phenomenon of altering, oh, I, I should say something basic. The, in the hierarchy of legal sources, statutes trump judicial decisions. Constitutions trump statutes, and statutes trump judicial decisions, which means that if there's a rule of law fashioned by a court governing uh, something, a private law subject in a jurisdiction, the legislature uh, in that state can alter it by passing a statute. And what happens in, the, in a period, I, I, I start with workers' compensation legislation in the first decade of the 20th century, and I go through the uh, model penal code of criminal law and, and federal rules of civil procedure and the uniform commercial code, um, all of which take me into the 1960s. Um, what, what happens in that, in that interval is there is increased involvement with legislatures, sometimes in the form of what are called model statutes which are promulgated by an institution called the American Law Institute, which is created in 1923, and one of its major roles is to, to get experts, uh, law professors and advisors, to create these model statutes and then try to get the statutes um, endorsed by state legislatures. And with respect to the Uniform Commercial Code, the ALI has considerable success in doing it. M many states adopt it. That's also true with respect to the federal laws of criminal procedure. The process is somewhat different, but, but uh, basically from the 1930s on, the, the, the law of uh, federal procedure is, is, um, is modified by, the, uh, by federal rules that are drafted and ultimately approved by the Supreme Court of the United States. 
The same thing happens in, in criminal law. There's a model penal code that's created by the American Law Institute, and it, it is offered to the states for adoption, and, and some states uh, adopt various provisions. Uh, the model penal code is a kind of reform of criminal law, not criminal procedure, but criminal law doctrines. Um, I call all of this, which happens sort of simultaneously for, for common law fields, I call it all statutorification. It's a way of, of, it's just a technique that I use to summarize a bunch of significant modifications of common law doctrines in several fields that took place over the course of the 20th century. What you've described is basically a process that involves taking a lot of existing fields of law and 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 you know developing the the, the statutes. You also though describe areas in which you have in effect you know whole new fields that are now having to be addressed by the law in in dramatically new ways. And I'm thinking here about your chapter where you talk about the law and mass communications, which I thought was a very fascinating. One you have communications in terms of newspapers, but during your period, you're talking you're covering the rise of of radio television, cable television, the internet. As you explained, it's, it's a, it, it requires a, a, you know, a, a lot of new approaches and new ways of thinking that didn't need to be there previously. Yes, it's a, a, the, the development of electronic media uh, is a real challenge for the courts. The, the, as you said, the, the principal sector, the principal media sector is, is print media for most of the for the 19th century and a lot of the early 20th century, we, we may forget in, in the world of, of today that, that newspapers are, have proliferated by the, let, let's just, you know, if we were to go to a snapshot uh, in, in the 1920s, um, every city has multiple newspapers. Uh, there, there are, newspapers are the principal means of communication. And the model for regulation of the print media uh, it is affected by um, theories of the First Amendment. The, the, um, the First Amendment is late to develop uh, uh, as, a, as an area of constitutional law. Um, and, and, and so for much of the early history of the print media, the, there are, the, the states can impose restrictions on the content. Of the media, and they do, uh, and the courts are are very late to understand the idea of a First Amendment privilege on the part of the print media to essentially uh, be free of content regulation within within some limits. As this is emerging, the electronic media come into being. The radio, as you say, is the first. Um, the decade of the 1920s is is the decade of radio. It begins with the sort of early radio stations in a few areas, and then we get radio networks, uh, and and we change the process from the Secretary of Commerce just giving out licenses to uh, the Federal Re 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 Regulatory Commission, the um, predecessor of the Federal Communications Commission. And then the Federal Communications essentially regulating the airways. Now, the regulation of the airways is, is at a level much beyond regulation of print media. And so the, the question is whether that's constitutional and, and why. And the, the, the courts have to spend a lot of time working that out. And the way they do work it out is basically that the Federal Communications Commission has much more power to regulate the content of network broadcasting uh, then a comparable commission, there is no such commission, but if there were a, uh, if there were a commission regulating the print media, w would have. Um, m meanwhile, as this is going on, the television comes into being. The, the 50s is the decade of television in a way that the 20s was for radio. Um, the number of sets um, goes from a, a marginal number at the beginning of the 1950s to 80% of households have television by the end of the decade. Uh, and most of the television is, is network television, uh, and, and, most, uh, and it's free, free in the sense that you have to buy a television set. Then sort of in, in one of those kind of unintended consequences uh, of technology, cable television emerges. Uh, cable television uh, first, um, came into being because there were areas that couldn't get signals from the uh, from the network broadcasting. Uh, 
so they they they, they conceived a process where they uh, created a um a uh, uh, uh rec- receiving cha- uh, receiving station uh that that got access to um uh, uh remote broadcasting then they had to figure out a way to to distribute the the signals that came in and the way they figured it out was through wires um so so cable emerges first just as a a way of getting programming in remote areas but then secondly uh, it uh, they they realized that cable could solve the problem of spectrum interference spectrum interference is is still present in the radio industry and and in brought in network channeling if you can't you know if you have a uh, a network uh, broadcast uh, on a signal uh, it can compete with another signal and, and and people can't receive it but but if you have a station and can receive the signals and then transmit them uh, on, on, on under uh, wires then then you solve the problem of and you can multiply the the channels and so cable comes into being and the court has to figure out what to do with that and the, there are two principal issues w- one is w- what about a political broadcasting to what extent can the uh, can the federal communications commission r- r- regulate a political advertising political broadcasting on on television um, and the the commission takes an aggressive view of that uh, that that um, and and for a while the FCC struggles with what they're going to do about affording various um, candidates access to the to the um, to the media for for advertising or, or broadcasting purposes. Uh, eventually, they, they they settle on on various rules, and, and we see the rules in place now with with uh, uh, debates on television. The the media have a fair amount of control about who they invite to. With the with the support of the FCC about who they invite to uh, uh, to speak at a debate, um, but but the other problem is is um, uh, erotic content of broadcasting, um, and broadcasting that's not obscene, uh, but is arguably not suitable for for younger viewers, and and uh, the FCC takes an aggressive stance with that, uh, and it's upheld by the court uh, with respect to network broadcasting. Then the court has to deal with cable, uh, and and the difference, arguably, difference in cable is first of all you can block the uh, the, the user doesn't have to buy a cable package and block a channel, uh, and and so the the rules for cable are somewhat different with respect to erotic content. You can have erotic content so long as you have safe harbors for it. You can't do it. You still can't do it on on the networks. If you have a wardrobe malfunction. Um, on a network broadcast, uh, then that's grounds for an FCC fine. And if it's a, if it's persistent, like uh, uh, like Howard Stern, uh, uh, a um, uh, a network uh, or a local station can lose a license. Meanwhile, while this is all going on, the internet comes in, and and that's another different kind of a medium. It's much more difficult to regulate the identity of of people uh, posting. Messages on the internet is hard to discern. Uh, the internet crosses uh, state and, and, and country lines, uh, and Congress has basically taken the position. Uh, Congress has attempted to regulate erotic content on the internet, the Communications Decency Act, and, and the court has struck it down. So, so we have uh, uh, we have what the court is now calling a media-specific approach to mass media regulation that that it the different media require different treatments and the internet is looking more like print than either of the of the uh, of the broadcast regimes it's fascinating to think of the ways in which we've kind of come full circle in that respect yes um uh yes you remember of course that in the in the pamphleteer days of the early republic when when people would put out uh, political messages on pamphlets, most of them anonymous, there was a lot of scurrilous um, content to those messages, uh, <laughs> allegations about you know about various candidates and, and political figures, um, and and in in some ways we're um, <laughs> we're back to that on social media. So during this period. Uh, though you also have the emergence of new uh, 
uh, jurisprudence. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about these uh, jurisprudential ideas that uh, evolved uh, in the aftermath of the emergence of legal realism, such as process theory. Yeah, I have I have two chapters on jurisprudence. Um, they're they're um, separated uh, by chapters that cover uh, intervals between the two, but really they're in some ways continuous. Um, the 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 second chapter takes up what I call process theory and what I call law and. Those are the two principal jurisprudential movements of the post World War II period. What happens essentially is that legal realism, which has a, you might call a, a might call it a relativist thrust. That there's a sense of many legal realists that that law is basically about the positive uh, edicts of people in power, and that morality has very little to do with it. And the people who are strongly strong advocates for realism get into difficulty in World War II. Uh, there's some criticism of the realists for being soft on totalitarianism, and the realists attempt to uh, retreat. And many law professors that are realists end up serving in World War II. And then they come back to the legal academy at the end of the war, and they've gotten into contact with governmental agencies, and, and, they, and, and their perspective is somewhat different. And out of that... Um, out of that trend comes a, a, a successor to legal realism, which, which draws on some of the insights of legal realism and tries to, I guess what I'd call a domesticated, sort of blunt some of its, uh, some of its more radical features. And, and uh, the name that, that most of us now working in the, in the field give to this movement is process theory, because its emphasis is on what it calls the legal process as a whole. That is, all the institutions, all the legal institutions uh, in America, from private ordering, uh, contracts between private individuals, to um, legislatures and agencies and courts, uh, and how they interact. And the, the, the process theorists had sort of two canons, two canonical views. One was that, that institutions did things differently, were better at some things than others. Legislatures were good at discerning public policy and, and uh, entertaining the views of, of, of citizens and responding to those views. Uh, courts were good at, at fashioning legal principles. Agencies were good at, at making expert decisions. And one of the canons of process theory is these institutions ought to stay within the spheres of their competence. It's called institutional competence theory. That means that courts should be shy in substituting their views for those of legislatures or agencies. They should be relatively deferential. Uh, that that um, that agencies should confine their decision makings to areas of their expertise and not venture beyond that. That that legislatures should make sure that their policies are grounded uh, on the views of their constituents. Uh, and out of that is a is a sort of a, a jurisprudence uh, of of um, uh, emphasizing uh, the allocation of different functions among agencies. So that's one one feature. The other canon of process theory is the idea which was expressed in an influential article by Herbert Wexler in, in 1960 called Neutral Principles of Constitutional Law. A, a major concern for the process theorists is decisions by the Supreme Court that although the results seem uh, sympathetic, decisions like Brown versus Board of Education, uh, desegregating the public schools. Uh, from a matter of policy, those seem admirable decisions, but but there's a difficulty in, in on what basis they're really grounded. What what is the constitutional rationale? What are the principles? And and neutral principles makes the claim that judges in interpreting the Constitution have to ground their decisions on principles that transcend the immediate outcomes of the case and are durable 
and capable of being brought forth over time and don't reflect merely the political enthusiasms of the moment. Um, So there's a lot of, there's a school of of process theorists that regularly criticize the Supreme Court in in, uh, forwards to the Harvard Law Review that begin in the 1950s, and and extend into the into the uh, throughout the 1960s, one after another they'll take up a, ki- a decision of the case and they'll, and they'll criticize it on on neutral principles or institutional competence theory grounds. So th- those are the major um, those are the major elements of process theory. Now what happens in the in the 1970s, early 1970s, and, and this is what ends up producing what I call law and law and is a a jurisprudential perspective that seeks to integrate the insights of other disciplines, economics, history, sociology, uh, political uh, theory, um, philosophy, um, uh, the behavioral sciences, with, with law. Um, it, it, its practitioners are often people who have uh, advanced degrees in those disciplines, and the idea is to write about legal subjects but to use the insights of another discipline to shed new um, shed new light on on issues and and uh, law and work my my work is law and work um, and the work of many people in in uh, from the 1970s on has been law and work of various kinds I, I in the chapter I talk about how uh, a generation of uh, a cohort, let's say, of of uh, people that entered the legal academy in the early 1970s, uh, entered the legal academy at a time when arts and sciences positions in in the universities were drying up. The arts and sciences market had been very robust in the early 60s. American higher education was expanding. There are a lot of new positions. A lot of people, a lot of departments hired new people. A lot of people went to graduate school. With the expectation of getting good jobs in the in the in the arts and sciences sector, and for a variety of reasons, including Vietnam and and uh, priorities in in the the federal government, uh, money for uh, the um, the universities um, uh, began to dry up, uh, and and the universities found themselves with a glut of of positions and 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 very little money to hire new people. And so the, the, the entry-level market for arts and sciences positions was dramatically affected. So a lot of people who were undergraduates in the, in the mid and late 1960s made a choice not to go to graduate school, but to go to law school. Um, but they had been people often, sometimes they had started a graduate program and left in the middle of it, thinking that the job prospects weren't very good. A lot of these people then had had a, a, a were substantively interested in, in in academic fields when they went to law school, uh, and and my generation of entry level people became disengaged from process theory. That was partly a, a phenomenon of the fact that the generations before us had done so much work in it, and we found that it was fairly narrow space to do additional work, and we thought maybe the work was going to be largely derivative. We didn't find it particularly interesting. Um, we and and some of us who had other degrees wanted to do law and work, and the legal academy uh, initially resisted that. Uh, and eventually, when we worked, uh, when our work became received to some extent, uh, uh, changed its its attitude. Um, and and so I sort of tell the story uh, of how that happened. You. We've been referencing throughout uh, uh, this uh, interview the uh, Supreme Court, and you talk about how it's, uh, you know, there have been key decisions that have uh, addressed or, or, or shaped aspects of this law. And, but you also have uh, in the, the latter part of your book, uh, several chapters in which you talk about the work of the Supreme Court. I mean, it, it, it's such so extensive, it could be practically a book unto itself. I was wondering if you could talk about uh, some of the key areas that the Supreme Court has, uh, a, you know, that that it addressed during this period, 
and and the ways in which it, it, it shaped or, or 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 reconceived of or influenced the development of American law during this period. Yeah, the first thing I want to say about that is I, I made a conscious decision uh, in the um, in the narrative of the book to separate out the chapters that were on constitutional law from the other chapters, so that the first six chapters uh, of the 12 that I have in the book are, are not about constitutional law developments. And then to take up the, the constitutional cases uh, in, in sequence, uh, by, by that I mean in terms of different um, areas of constitutional law. Part of the reason I did that is because I, I felt that the court's uh, engagement with constitutional issues uh, especially from the 1940s on, was um, was so dramatic uh, that the, the, so many fields were transformed by what the court did uh, that that I wanted to present chapters that would give a kind of cumula that would have a cumulative effect. So after you run, run through uh, foreign relations and and due process. Uh, and uh, equal protection and free speech. Um, you, the reader, if he's he or she is willing to <laughs> to stay with the details um, of those chapters, uh, uh, might get a sense of just how, just what a dramatic impact the court has had. And this is the this is the era uh, of, of course, the Warren Court. Um, but before that, it's the era of the Vincent Court that makes some major inroads in in, in free speech, um, and, and then uh, the Burger Court, which major inroads in in, in gender discrimination, uh, uh, and and uh, and on, and you know until until 2000. So by um, you know by the 1960s, we already have a a transformed jurisprudence of, of constitutional law. Uh, and it just continues to go on. So, so um, it, you know, it, it, we might recall that um, when Felix Frankfurter was nominated to the Supreme Court um, in in uh, uh, in 1939, uh, he um, uh, the 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 Senate, of course, had a confirmation process, and they invited Frankfurter to participate in the process, and he declined. He didn't even go to the uh, the confirmation hearings. Um, uh, you know, imagine the contrast between that and and let's say the the Robert Bork nomination in 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 the 1980s. Uh, the the whole process of appointing Supreme Court justices has been transformed, and that is in part because the court is rightly perceived of as a, a major institutional force in American life. Uh, and so I wanted to just sort of demonstrate how that came to be in these in these successive chapters. We've been talking about the law from a variety of of, of you know philosophical uh, you know, technical approaches. You conclude your book though with a chapter talking about law and politics, and I, I was wondering why it was you chose uh, uh, to focus upon that in, in in a separate chapter, and and uh, in why you conclude. With Bush versus Gore as the uh, as the final major case that you discuss. Well, I I, I had decided from almost the beginning uh, of thinking about writing this book to end, if I could, with Bush v. Gore, uh, not in part because the decision is made in two thousand and it, it decides the two thousand presidential uh, election, and in some ways it's a kind of summation of of the twentieth century. But but also because it it captures the the very close and ongoing relationship between law and politics in in, in American culture, uh, how important the court is in political decisions, how judges tend to have increasingly tended to be perceived of as as political figures and perhaps even partisan political figures, um, but but Bush v. Gore is not. Uh, so much about the relationship between judges and politics as it's about a doctrine that comes into play in Bush v. Gore, indeed is pivotal in Bush v. Gore, 
the so-called political question doctrine. That's a doctrine that says that there are certain issues that are not appropriate for the courts to decide at all. They're what's called non-justiciable. They're confined to another branch of government. A major illustration is reapportionment or gerrymandering. You might want to argue that when a legislature decides how it's going to apportion its districts, how it's going to count votes in its district, that is a quintessentially legislative function. It's not appropriate for the courts to affect that by fashioning rules for apportionment or gerrymandering. But that, of course, is exactly what the Supreme Court does in the reapportionment cases. Prior to the reapportionment cases, however, the political question doctrine has significant legs. So I start in the chapter by tracing that, and it really goes back to the early 20th century. And I show how the doctrine ended up getting changed and modified in the reapportionment cases, and that after the reapportionment cases, oversight, judicial oversight of legislative decision-making, particularly where it affected minority rights, became customary. And it's all of that that eventually leads to Bush v. Gore. Now, Bush v. Gore was a case the court never anticipated deciding. It's an extremely unusual case. It hasn't had many doctrinal legs because of its being so unusual. But Bush v. Gore is part of the legacy of the political question doctrine. For the Supreme Court to have decided that it needed to review the decisions of the Florida Supreme Court, it needed to essentially say this is not a political question, not fully a political question. This is a question that has some constitutional ramifications. So I use Bush v. Gore to review the political question doctrine and to sort of talk about how we're now in a world where we can't really say that there are decisions. Well, I won't say we can't really say. The court believes that some decisions, political gerrymandering, are ones it ought to stay out of, but there's a very limited category of those decisions. So I thought it was a good place to end. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yes. To talk about that, I want to give a little analogy. In 1993, I published a book on Justice Holmes. It was a biography. It took me a long time to write. Prior to that, I'd written a book on the Marshall Court in the Holmes Devise series. I'd been 10 years on those two books, and I wanted a break. So I decided to write a book on baseball. I played a lot of sports in my career, and baseball was one of them. So I ended up doing a book called Creating the National Pastime about how baseball was transformed between 1903 and 1953 from essentially a working-class sport like boxing or racing to a family-friendly sport and how the owners did that. And at this point, I'm doing an analogous project, a book on the history of soccer in the United States, why soccer was not a success for the late 19th and 20th century when the English version of what they called football was being transplanted across the globe into English-speaking countries, but it never took root in the United States. No successful American professional soccer league really until the late 1960s, and even that league failed. Not a lot of play in the colleges and universities of men's soccer until really the late 1950s. There's no national championship in men's soccer until 1959. Women don't play soccer in college at all, even though they play field hockey and basketball and other sports. So I'm trying to figure out why that happened. I'm also then trying to figure out how it is that somehow in the early 20th century, soccer has proliferated, revived and proliferated. It's now the third most common participatory sport in the United States, 
following only basketball and volleyball. More more uh, people play soccer of both uh, sexes uh, than than play baseball or gridiron football or or uh, uh, hockey or golf or tennis. And and uh, so I want to uh, I want to try to and the major league soccer, uh, the the uh, professional soccer league is is for the first time really poised on poised on thriving. Uh, the the teams are are at a point where they're actually going to make some money. They're expanding the uh, they they're building soccer friendly stadiums. So I, I I just want to take the opportunity to review that and and see what I can contribute to it. Well, it sounds like a fascinating project. Maybe we can have you uh, back on the New Books Network when you uh, publish it. I'd love to do that. <laughs> well, well, Ted White, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. <laughs>